Um, the Old Testament reading today uh, is uh, from Lamentations, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. I'm correct, that's good. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labour, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed feasts. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her maidens grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters, her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendour has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honoured her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Look, O Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The New Testament reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 22, starting at verse 31, which is on page 746. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, 
exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy! Who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me again welcome you. If uh, you're here, new, visiting here for the first time, uh, we are uh, working our way through part of Luke's Gospel, and I encourage you to have that open, the part that Liz just read to us. Uh, we're doing a series as we lead up to Easter, seeing uh, Jesus' preparation to be uh, for his coronation. Uh, not the coronation we normally expect, uh, but one that uh, sees him caught controversy uh, before eventually he's crucified and then conquered. Uh, so we're picking up in that series. Uh, let me also draw to your attention, um, if you've ever noticed before there are response slips, or if you, you knew before, I'll, I'll let you know of that early, because you may have questions or comments uh, on the way through. You might want to jot them down. It's a great way of communicating. Uh, also, if you're interested in uh, getting the weekly updates of more things that are happening in church that we don't bother putting on the piece of paper, uh, that's a great way of getting those. So I'll bring those to your attention. But let's pray that God might speak to us now. Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the goodness of your word, even in the hard and sad parts of it. Uh, Father, we thank you that you've given your word, that uh, it gives clarity to us about you and what you are like, and also gives us the opportunity to see the reality of ourselves as we rub up against your word. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit might be powerfully at work now, uh, helping us to see better you, and helping us to realise more accurately what we are like. Uh, Father, speak to us, we pray. Amen. I think there are a few more beautiful prayers than uh, the one we just had read to us uh, from Luke's Gospel. Uh, Christ's words there in the garden, in the the peak of temptation, in anguish and in doubt. Uh, Verse 42, Father, 
if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful prayer, isn't it, at, at, at so many levels. Uh, it's comforting for us if, uh, if you, like me, know that his submission at this point will mean our salvation. You know, it, it's striking um, even to see the perfect uh, father-son relationship. You know, even those of us here from you know, fairly functional families wouldn't claim that that was always the attitude we had to our parents. You know, no, no, I'd really like this, but, you know, Dad, your will. You know, I'll go along with whatever you say. Uh, but in the context of what Luke has written down for us, what's truly remarkable is, is just the uncompromising faithfulness and commitment of Jesus uh, under extreme pressure and extreme temptation. You know, we, we all know the damage unfaithfulness can do, um, failure to follow through on what you say. Uh, you know, let me take you to the extreme end. We, we see its most destructive power in, in marital infidelity, don't we? Um, after John Edwards, uh, if you don't remember him, he was a US president, presidential candidate last year, uh, a father of three. Uh, after his infidelity was exposed last year, this was quoted by Janice Spring, uh, a psychologist from Yale. When a parent has an affair that is disclosed, the landscape of the family changes. It can't be denied. Uh, there are often two losses for the child. The hurt partner is often filled with anxiety and depression, not available to the child the same way as before, and the unfaithful parent is off with the affair person and not available to the child. The family blows apart. You know, unfaithfulness doesn't just affect the immediate people, it has collateral damage that blows out. Now, I take us to the extreme to see the effects of what unfaithfulness under temptation can do to bring it a little closer because we realise, we know, that our small failures can cause damage as well. Uh, we blush, don't we, when we remember the times that we gave our word. We said we'd do something, uh, but then we realise something else comes up or we realise, oh, that'll actually be costly or that'll hurt us. And so we kind of excuse ourselves and we pull out. Or alternatively, we don't even you know, give an excuse, we just drop it. Yeah, not that we couldn't find an excuse. If we searched hard enough, we'd find an excuse. There's always a reason, isn't there? There's, there's always some pressure bearing down on us, isn't there? There's always, you know, temptation around. And, yeah, but we know the damage of unfaithfulness. And we know our willingness to compromise. And it's why this prayer of Jesus is just so remarkable. He is under the most extreme of pressure and temptation, but he doesn't buckle. Uh, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. If there's nothing else um, we need to grasp today, we need to grasp this, the, the uncompromising faithfulness of Jesus because uh, that's got great benefits for us, as we'll see. So Jesus says, just to fit him in the context, he's just had his final meal, the, the Passover, with his closest friends and at the meal he again outlined how he was uh, going to be sacrificed for those he loved. And from what he's already told them, uh, when you get to the crucifixion, the person least surprised at the crucifixion is Jesus. <laughs> you know, he knows exactly what's going on. Uh, but to complete this plan is going to re require incredible commitment, a greater level of faithfulness to not break under pressure. And, and over and over again, what this passage does is reveal his commitment when the pressure mounts and when the blowtorch is put to the belly. Uh, let, let me draw out three ways we see it. Um, first is he's faithful even when he has to do this alone. He's faithful when he has to do this alone. So in verse 32, Jesus tells Peter directly that in a matter of hours, Peter is going to disown his best friend and teacher. And Peter protests, no, 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 Jesus, that's not going to happen to me. I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to die for you. 
But as the pressure mounts, as Jesus realised no one's going to be there to help him, he is still faithful. Uh, Luke makes a special mention in verse 41 uh, that when he gets to the garden, he actually withdraws a stone's throw away. I don't know how far you can throw a stone, but it's, the idea is it's a distance away. It shows, he knows he's doing this alone. Even his closest friends, you realise, won't be with him. You know, it's hard enough for us to um, turn up to a dinner party alone where you know no one. You know, those, you know, you've received a wedding, recept, wedding invitation and the only people you know are the couple and you know how wedding receptions work and the fact is you never get to talk to the couple at a wedding reception. It's hard enough to turn up to those kind of events where you know someone, you know, like you pull into the car park and you kind of go, will we, you know, will we go? Yeah, that's at a dinner party. That's at a fun event. It's hard enough to do alone. And yet Christ faces death betrayed by his very closest friends. Uh, as someone wrote, the kiss of friendship that Judas gives him in the garden has captured the human imagination as the most powerful and offensive image of betrayal. You know, the act of friendship which is really stabbing you in the back. And we can't help but be moved when you get to verse 61 and Peter, uh, Jesus looks at Peter and Peter just crumbles and weeps. Jesus is faithful and he's faithful alone. Secondly, he's faithful knowing full well the suffering that awaits him. He's faithful knowing the suffering awaits him. Uh, in verse 38, he, he kind of dismissively says, yeah, two souls will be plenty, um, you know, for, for 12 of them. You know, the, the, the idea is not that they'll kind of have a slash and share the sword around, but the idea and the understanding that it's a symbolic thing. He's about to face violent opposition. And, and so there's this you know, band of soldiers that meet him when he arrives in the garden, and by the end of our reading, he is being beaten and he is being mocked and he is insulted. But that is not why he was sweating like drops of blood. It was the cup. Verse 42, he asks, the cup be taken from him. The cup is a way of speaking of God's righteous anger being poured out on the wickedness of humanity. It's the picture that Lamentations gave us. It's why that grief was being poured out in the reading David brought to us. It's what Jeremiah 25 says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they'll stagger and go mad because of the sword I'll send among them. In no way, you know, the, the cup is, is the, the suffering for sin, but he's about to drink it. Now, in no way does Jesus want to, does Luke try and hide Jesus' humanity at this point, how much of a struggle it is? Yes, Jesus is entirely, completely God. Father, Son, and Spirit are one. It's why when the wrath of God is poured out on the cross, it's not that a third person, a third party who's innocent is being punished. Rather, it's, it's the wronged party choosing to take the punishment himself, the hurt himself. But Jesus is also entirely human. You know, he wants us to see uh, that just like us, he's no glutton for punishment. You know, he is in anguish in verse 44. Literally the word there is he is in agony. He is in agony. He's so anxious that he is sweating profusely in the middle of a cold night. And with honesty and with humility, uh, he makes a request of his father, please can we remove the cup? Is there another way? Now, there have been times in history where others have made that request of God and he's granted it. Uh, Moses did it in Exodus 32, God took it away. Uh, David did it in 2 Samuel 15. Uh, King Hezekiah did it in 2 Kings 20. If you really want to find those references, I'm sure you'll come and speak to me later. 
Uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's not that the Father took pleasure in this. But there was no other way to glory, no other way to rescue humanity, no, no prospect of dealing with the world's injustice mercifully except through him drinking the cup of wrath. And knowing that suffering, Jesus stood firm and was faithful. Thirdly, I want to point you to how he's faithful, acting by choice, not compulsion. He does it willingly. Yes, he struggled, but... At no point is Jesus ever out of control. As you read through that, as we read through that passage, uh, he is the one who controls the events. Uh, in verse 39, did you notice there was a little aside? Uh, Luke records, Jesus went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. As usual. Yeah, the whole reason the authorities needed uh, a traitor like Judas, an insider to be on their side, is that in a dark garden, when there's no electricity, no street lamps, it's actually really hard to find people. And it's immensely easy to hide. Um, it's not that difficult to get away. That's why every day he was in the courts, but they, they didn't lay a hand on him. But at night, he could have hidden. And what does Jesus do, knowing that Judas had gone off? As usual. Sticks to the routine. Walks into the trap. He, he chooses to go in. Looking at verse 42 closer, you, you see that prayer, his real desire. Yes, he'd love the cup to be removed, but he's got a greater desire than that. His real desire is to do the Father's will. He is choosing to put aside his personal comfort for the benefit of others and to submit to his Father's plan. You know, even at the point of arrest, you can imagine Jesus is still in control. He could have chosen to leave at that point. Uh, yes, there's a, an armed, armed group of soldiers, but you know, a guy gets his ear cut off by an overenthusiastic disciple. Jesus has the power to put it back on and heal it instantly. Surely he has the power to get himself out of that situation. But he chooses not to. And that's perhaps the most remarkable feature of his faithfulness. It's a choice. You know, as the blowtorch is heating up, the pressure is mounting, it's purely a longing to love traitors that holds him there. Now, this week I heard for the first time the name Dennis Avey. Don't worry if you've never heard that name either. Um, he should be a household name, he's just not. Uh, Dennis Avey is, is 91, uh, a British World War II POW who broke into Auschwitz. Yeah, into, not out of, he broke into Auschwitz. Uh, it was 1943, he was deported to a POW camp um, right next to the concentration camp uh, and he worked during the day, they, they worked with the stripies, they called them, the, uh, uh, the Jewish prisoners. Now, doing that, he realised what was going on, uh, which the Allied forces in 1943 didn't know. They didn't know what was going on in these concentration camps. Um, even more than that, he realised that when the war was over... Uh, there was going to need evidence to convict these war criminals. And so, in his words, like breaking into hell, he devised a plan that he could get into Auschwitz. Uh, so he found this uh, Dutch Jew uh, of a similar build to him and persuaded him to change places for a day. He shaved his head. Uh, they organised, while well, the guards weren't looking, uh, a place where they could go, swap clothes. And he spent a day there in Auschwitz. And he described his day. There was an SS officer weeding out the weaklings for the gas. Overhead was a gallows, which had a corpse hanging from it as a deterrent. An orchestra was playing Wagner to accompany our march. It was chilling. Now, he didn't, not surprisingly, sleep that night. Now, he did gather a lot of information, though. 
And the next day he retraded places with that Dutch Jew. And what struck me most about the story was not just the courage of Dennis Avey, but the incredible faithfulness of that Dutch Jew, that nameless Dutch Jew. He didn't even know his name. You know, Avey said, although I trusted him, I couldn't be sure he'd turn up. And you wonder, what kind of temptation did that guy wrestle with the night before? You know, how many times he would have thought about, oh, I could just skip the rendezvous and not go back into Auschwitz. You know, he'd had a day of reprieve from hell on earth. Now, if that were you, what would you do? But he kept his word and he went back. And he did die in Auschwitz. And the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has a choice. I wonder what you would have prayed. You know, Lord, get me out of here no matter the cost. Or perhaps you'd be with me already, have run away and not be praying. But Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You know, knowing he is completely alone, he is faithful. Knowing the suffering, he doesn't compromise. Uh, It's not that he's compelled, he chooses. He chooses to be faithful even though it hurts him. And and as people who struggle in much smaller areas than that, we, we see in the garden that night true faithfulness. And so in Christ we see someone who is profoundly trustworthy and entirely reliable. I want to suggest that's a massive comfort for us. Yeah, he makes great calls on our lives. He, he says, give up everything and follow him. But he doesn't ask us to do anything that he isn't willing to do at a much greater scale. Now, under incredible pressure, he is faithful. Yes, we know just as explosively as, as unfaithfulness and infidelity can destroy confidence, this kind of faithfulness builds trust, doesn't it? You can trust someone like Jesus. Because if he's that faithful in those circumstances, be assured he can be trusted at all times. Even when he asks you to do difficult, countercultural things. You know, like earlier in Luke 14, he said, you know, make friends with the despised and those who will never be able to repay you. Or, or in Luke 19, where he says, take your gifts and use them to build not your own kingdom, but my kingdom. Even in those times, we can trust that he keeps promises. He is faithful. Uh, the early church bishop, a guy called Polycarp, he was martyred around uh, AD 166. Um, He was offered the chance of living if he recanted Jesus. And he said, "Um, 86 years I have served him and he's never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? Bring forth what thou wilt. You know, Polycarp knew the faithfulness of Christ, not just from seeing the moment in the garden, but the experience of his life. And maybe that's your experience too. I haven't had 86 years, uh, but I have certainly found him faithful. You know, in times of ease, um, for me, he's graciously humbled me. Uh, In times of hardship, he's given me strength. In times of failure, it's been my choice to do things my way uh, rather than him letting me down. Jesus is uncompromisingly faithful. That's the beauty of that prayer, isn't it? Three things I want us to take away and, and, and hold on to and reflect on from that. First, how it shows up our unfaithfulness. Luke is really careful in giving us not just Jesus' actions, but everyone around him. In the the passage we read, um, the the firm commitment of Jesus is put against the failure of of everyone else and we're there too, aren't we? Judas betrays with a kiss. He betrays, but he's trying to hide it, isn't he, with with actions of love. He's kind of like the adulterer who buys extra bunches of roses for his wife. 
You know, there's those who arrest Christ uh, and they see his goodness. You know, he's healing one of their friends and yet they're still uh, doing their duty. You know, like the worker whose priorities are so skewed, they've lost their ethics just to keep on the career path. And then the saddest, perhaps, is Peter. His big words of loyalty that get exposed in the cool of the night. He's passionate and flawed. Um, his nickname, is Peter, is, means literally rocky, but he crumbles, doesn't he? The words that he, he uses to deny Jesus in, in verse 57 to 60, they're actually remarkably similar to the official Jewish ban uh, that was what you said if you considered someone officially estranged, dead to you. You know, he's like that one who desperately wants to follow Jesus, but just the struggle to stand against the stream of culture is too much. You know, it's different ways, but they're all unfaithful, aren't they? And if I were to ask you, where were you in that passage? Where was I? Uh, who's the closest to us? I suspect the only person we aren't is Jesus. You know, we're all flawed and faithless at times but this is not all misery secondly it shows that our faithfulness can be overcome christ's faithfulness is a comfort it's not a kick in the teeth church is not about shooting the wounded it's about restoring and healing them jesus confidence for peter in verse 32 is that he's been prayed for and he will be restored and he will go on to encourage others Sure, he failed massively. The rooster crowed in 61, we're told the Lord looked at Peter. We're not told the way he looked. You know, you kind of have to fill that picture in for yourself, you know, what kind of look it was. But I suspect, given his words, it wasn't with condemnation. You know, Peter's failed, he breaks down, but the cup Christ goes to drink is to bear the weight of all those failures and many more. You know, I don't know the extent of your failures. I don't even know the full extent of my own. But I know enough to realise they can be overcome. And Christ has suffered and he has triumphed so that those who turn back to him might never bear that judgment themselves. And finally, what I say as we look at his faithfulness, we see a model for avoiding unfaithfulness. We see prayer. Now, I said earlier Jesus faced alone. One sense, that's kind of not true. Uh, In verse 40, he prayed that he wouldn't fall into temptation. He deals with hardship by relying on his father and God sends angelic aid in verse 43 to strengthen him, not to get him out of there. Uh, His advice to his disciples is what? Pray, verse 46, pray. The the sense of the verb there is not a one-off quick prayer, but keep praying, persist in prayer. How do you avoid failure and, and falling to temptation? Not by your own strength, but by calling on God's and turning to him. You know, I know prayer is a struggle, but there's an incentive, isn't there? Uh, the, the disciples there are, are, are too overwhelmed by the sorrow, and, and so they fail to pray. Prayer is a struggle, and it always has been. Uh, over 1,500 years ago, Augustine talked about his difficulty in prayer, and it, it seems, well, the language is a bit old, but it's remarkably familiar. You know, my life is full of such lapses, and my one hope is in your great mercy. Uh, when my heart becomes a receptacle of distractions of this nature the container for a mass of empty thoughts, then too my prayers are often interrupted and distracted. And in your sight, while I'm directing the voice of my heart to your ears, frivolous thoughts somehow rush in and cut short an aspiration of the deepest importance. Yeah, I know his problem. I sit down to pray and I'm going to pray grand big things, aren't I? And then I start praying for someone and I realise, oh yeah, I was meant to call them. And that reminds me that I had to email somebody else about and 
you know, frivolous thoughts somehow rush in and cut short an aspiration of the deepest importance. But like Augustine, our, our one hope is the mercy of God. In times of trial, pray, pray, pray. For Christ is faithful. Christ listens. Christ gives strength. Yeah, I want you, I want us all this morning to know the faithfulness of Christ. And may his beautiful prayer be ours. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Why don't we pray now? Lord and Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus and how that covers over all our faithlessness. Father, may we find real comfort in him today. Father, we thank you for his willingness to go alone, to bear the weight of our sin. We thank you that his faithfulness deals so gently with us and we pray that you would be working in us that we might pray truly what he prayed, that we wouldn't seek our own will but rather to do yours. In Jesus' name, amen.